This is Bishop John Barris, and you're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Well, welcome back, everybody, and thanks for downloading our podcast today. Today, we conclude our four-part series called Advancing Our Church Through Challenging Times. And today's episode replays a live stream conversation on the topic of marketing Catholic school resilience. But before we begin, I would just like to say a couple of words on the topic of racism in our country, because I think it's something that we have to understand from a faith perspective. As Catholics, we have a stance on this topic, which it's not new to us as a church. We believe in the sanctity and the dignity of all human life. Vatican II addressed racism back in 1965, and let's keep in mind what else was happening in our country around the civil rights movement of the 60s. Our parents and our grandparents were in the middle of fighting the issue back then. The Vatican II document called Gaudum et Spes, which, if you don't know your Latin, and not many of us do, means, quote, the church in the modern world. In this document, the bishops say, and I quote, any kind of social or cultural discrimination in basic personal rights on the grounds of sex, race, color, social conditions, language, or religion must be curbed and eradicated as incompatible with God's design. We know that as Catholics, as Christians, this behavior is the complete opposite of what Christ called us to live. So where do we go from here? Well, we try to do what we've always done, and that is to be welcoming and indiscriminate as a community, one that recognizes the unique and distinctive dignity of all people. And if we see racism in our offices, in our churches, or even in our family, we have the responsibility to address it head on. We can't apologize for what we haven't done, but we can take responsibility and challenge ourselves to look at the world through the eyes of our brothers and sisters. We're called to teach as Jesus did, and that's through love and compassion, which is our mission. And so, we need to have those conversations with your staff. They're bound to be uncomfortable, but so is, I'm told, having a baby. We can't birth a new world that eliminates racism without having a lot of uncomfortable conversations and making some tough choices. So with that said, let's get to work. On today's podcast, and perhaps on a lighter note, I host another fantastic panel discussion with four amazing leaders in the field of Catholic education. First, Mary Pat Donahue is the Executive Director for the Secretariat of Catholic Education at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Also, longtime listeners of our show will remember Dr. Timothy Yule from episode 40 back in November. Dr. Yule is the superintendent for Montana Catholic Schools and the host of the Catholic School Matters podcast. Another friend of our show, Dr. Brooke Tichet, rejoins us. Dr. Tichet was with us almost a year ago for episode 18 discussing the new Colby Academy. Brooke is the chancellor for Catholic education in the Diocese of Allentown. And last but not least, Kevin Kajewski joins our show, and he is the superintendent for Detroit Catholic Schools. This was a terrific conversation. We're going to reference a document during our conversation that was put together by a few members of this group on the resilience of Catholic schools throughout this pandemic. And I'll leave a link to that document in our show notes. And so, without further ado, here's our conversation. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. So glad to have you here with us today. 
Our topic today is Catholic education and the resilience of Catholic schools. And I've assembled four terrific panelists to, uh, to guide us through that conversation today. Uh, before we begin, uh, as we've done with all of our presentations, we're just going to start with a quick prayer. So uh, this one is actually taken from the uh, USCCB site, and that's in honor of you, Mary Pat. Say prayer uh, for solidarity for the coronavirus, uh, but also in a special way. I think today we want to re remember all those who have been impacted by uh, racism uh, and certainly by the, the violence that we've seen around our country for all those who are suffering right now and for all those who need justice and, and peace. So we'll start in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, for all who have contracted the coronavirus, we pray for care and healing. For those who are particularly vulnerable, we pray for safety and protection. For all who experience fear or anxiety, we pray for peace of mind and spirit. For affected families who are facing difficult decisions between food on the table or public safety, we pray for policies that recognize their plight. For those who do not have adequate health insurance, we pray that no family will face financial burdens alone. For those who are afraid to access care due to immigration status, we pray for recognition of the God-given dignity of all. For our brothers and sisters around the world, we pray for shared solidarity. For public officials and decision makers, we pray for wisdom and guidance. Father, during this time, may your church be a sign of hope, comfort, and love to all. Grant peace, grant comfort, grant healing. Be with us, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, again, welcome, everyone. Um, if we have not met, uh, my name is Jim Friend. I'm a managing director for Changing Our World. And we're very pleased uh, to have brought you this uh, webinar series. I'm also the host of our Advancing Our Church podcast. Uh, which is produced weekly uh, on iTunes and a variety of other channels. This webinar will also be reproduced on our Advancing Our Church podcast, and it'll be available on our website, both at changingourworld.com and advancingourchurch.com. We have a great panel again today. We will have the opportunity for those who are alive to ask questions. And so I encourage you uh, to post questions in the chat for our panelists, and we will work through those questions during the course of our conversation. So please do that. If you have a question or a comment, odds are somebody else who's listening has the same question or comment. And it does add flavor and a little bit of uh, fun to our conversation when we can respond to those questions live. So please do that. First, we'll start with Mary Pat Donahue. Welcome, Mary Pat. It's great to meet you and great to have you on our panel today. Mary Pat is the Executive Director for the Secretariat of Catholic Education for the United States Conference of Catholic bishops. Welcome, Mary Pat. We have Dr. Tim Yule, the superintendent for Montana Catholic Schools and also the host of Catholic School Matters podcast. Welcome, Tim. We have Kevin Kajuski, the superintendent of schools for the Archdiocese of Detroit. Good to see you, Kevin. Uh, good to be with you as always. And Dr. Brooke Tache, the chancellor for Catholic education in the Diocese of Allentown uh, and a former colleague of mine. Welcome, Brooke. Brooke and Tim, we've had you on the show before. Kevin and I uh, worked together briefly in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Mary Pat, this is our first uh, time together, so it uh, should be a fun. I know that all of you have worked together uh, in one form or fashion uh, on Catholic schools and uh, in marketing. You, uh, Some of you had actually recently produced a, a document on, uh, on marketing Catholic schools and how Catholic schools have been uh, resilient during the uh, crisis. And that was what inspired me on the topic of marketing Catholic school resilience. 
and how our schools have been resilient throughout this crisis. So let me just throw out, uh, start the conversation a little bit, uh, maybe at the beginning for uh, how this situation evolved. Let's go back to March just for a moment. How did you initially adapt and what kind of supports were you able to offer the schools and, and challenges you may have seen? I'm just gonna throw this open to the, to the panel too, who would like to jump in there first. Well, maybe I'll just quickly start uh, because every superintendent, every principal has their own story. Here in the state of Michigan, uh, it, we really were shut down effective the week of March 16th. But the Friday before that, the governor really late at night basically said, uh, we're going to close schools for a while. Uh, and frankly, our principals, in addition to our departmental staff and the Catholic Schools Office, thought this is probably going to be a little bit longer than a few weeks. Uh, so we actually all came together relatively late at night or in the morning, about 2 a.m. I'll never forget that. That's probably the earliest staff meeting I'll ever have. We all <laughs> came to the conclusion that we're going to actually shut down schools for a week. We actually moved spring break, which was very unpopular, I could tell you, at least at that time, from uh, the traditional week after Easter to that first week that schools would be shut down. So the kids had it off, but ultimately we worked with all of our schools in terms of our independent, our archdiocesan schools, to ensure that they had effective distance learning plans. So that's sort of how it kicked off, but there have been many blessings and silver linings to come from that, but I'm sure I could cover that a little bit later. Yep. But uh, you know, from something as urban as Detroit, I'm kind of curious in terms of Tim, you know, being in big sky country, uh, how was it for you in terms of making that transition? Well, thanks for that great transition. Nice uh, transition. Kevin. Yes. It's like you're a pro. Are you the host now? Um, yeah, I mean, we meet with we meet uh, virtually once a month. So I started meeting it and our meeting at the beginning of February. Uh, that was the topic. And I said, I'm tracking this virus. If you haven't seen contagion, like this is going to be the playbook. They're going to go for social distancing and closing schools. And everybody thought it was crazy. And I said, listen, I've got an over under is April 15th. We're gonna close by April 15th. And I said, once we're closed, we're probably gonna be done for the year. So we better start gearing up. I'm telling you, there was a couple principals that like, you are absolutely crazy. And then in March, when we met, I was like, okay, it's ramping up. Can you feel it? And they were like, yeah, but I still think we're good. You know, like we're, we're, we're gonna be, I, I think we'll make it. And I was like, well, April 15th is probably too far off. So yeah, we, it was that same, it was that same deal. I, actually ours, Kevin came on Sunday night. We were all expecting it, but it came at late Sunday evening was like, we're canceled for the next week. So what we started doing is we started meeting every day at 9 a.m. And so it was a standing meeting, wasn't required, but boy, our, we just started sharing. And so um, I, I think our, our principals felt more on top of what was going on nationally and they were informing their communities because many of their communities are like, this isn't going to last. I'm like, this is going to last. Like, we, you know, we're, we're not as like, we're not coming back. And so now I find myself wondering, maybe I am too reactionary and, and we don't really know how. But but I think building that support and being creative as far as virtual meetings once a day where they could yeah. check in. And, and then they could go out and say, what are you doing about activities? What are you doing about stipends? What are you doing about PPP loans? And we would form like separate little groups. So it was mm -hmm. it worked pretty well. Uh, I would concur with both Kevin and Tim. In Allentown, we uh, had our principals preparing flexible instructional plans 
for snow days. And in preparation for snow days, we had a very mild winter um, without. And so for us, it came Friday, uh, March 13th. We had those plans already completed and we just pivoted <laughs> from, um, you know, from snow days to now virtual days because of this virus. Um, so we had a, a really great start um, within the first two weeks. Um, and I think that really brought some confidence to um, to our principals, to our teachers, and really our families, um, that we were ready and we were prepared. Um, and then we continued that process. And we did the same thing. We set up regularly scheduled meetings. Um, we did by region. Uh, we also did our principals um, uh, separately, our high schools and our elementary, because they had some unique needs, um, and just continued to strengthen the planning and really the infrastructure so we could have really strong communication. And Mary Pat, how about uh, at the USCCB? How uh, yeah. I'm sure your phone was ringing we're, off the hook. We were getting a lot of calls. Um, obviously, my story is a little bit different. But like Tim, uh, the first rumblings I heard were in February. Uh, being in Washington, we were beginning to hear that the federal government was preparing for telework um, agency-wide. That was um, startling to us. Uh, the second thing, of course, once this began um, and the shutdowns and the economic implications became apparent, my office really geared up to uh, to do advocacy for things like PPP. And I really do want to credit uh, the USCCB's Office of Government Relations and their advocacy work to get religious institutions covered in that, to have it, the bill written in such a way that religious liberty was preserved and that we could be included. And this was quite a heavy lift. So mm -hmm. um, major kudos to our advocates on behalf of, of the bishops. Um, and then the third thing was, you know, we were on the phone with a lot of uh, superintendents, with people from across the country. And what was emerging was just really a treasure trove of best excellent practices. We were charged in my office with providing resources. And one area that I particularly focused on was the need to provide resources for students with special learning needs because the impact of distance learning would be greatest on them. So I worked with Doreen Angle. Many of you may know Doreen as an excellent expert in Catholic special education um, to, to develop those resources. So that's what filled the first weeks of this crisis for me. Can imagine. And I'm sure that um, each of your schools is, is certainly gifted in different ways, and some were more challenged than others. I'm sure that not every school had uh, Chromebooks or every school had distance learning set up. How did you find uh, the individual schools were able to adapt those who may have been lacking in the, because technology, let's face it, played such a pivotal role. We couldn't have, it would have looked very different 20 years ago had this pandemic hit. How did uh, your schools that may have needed a quick upgrade adapt uh, in this learning environment? I'm happy to take that. So, I mean, in Detroit, we have rural schools, we have suburban schools and urban schools. Right. Mostly when it came to our urban schools, uh, while we did have technology or more so devices to be used in the classroom, a lot of the families in Detroit proper, the city of Detroit proper, do not have really the resources at home. So we're able to kind of address that in two ways. Uh, one was actually taking a look at a partnership that we have with Sprint uh, and actually giving devices, mostly iPads with actually LTE built in and ready to use uh, for a handful of those kids where uh, they didn't necessarily have the technology at home. That worked out really well. 
But the second thing, and this is again, kudos to Mary Pat, her team at the USCCB, when we take a look at the CARES Act, specifically, I'll never forget it because I still deal with it, section 18003, subsection D, subsections one through 12, all the various uh, particular types of devices or, or resources you can get. So just to make sure that we're gonna be prepared, and we're doing a number of these things too, but prepared for a second wave of coronavirus in the fall, uh, we're gonna be utilizing those monies to ensure that there is really a one-to-one -one ratio when it comes to children to devices for the fall. But it was kind of hard to scramble and get all those logistics done originally, that's fine. But this fall, we're certainly gonna be very well prepared. I think Kevin just revealed himself as an attorney. I think that you <laughs> That's true. I'm trying to read half of my soul by working in Catholic education. <laughs> Go ahead, Brooke. Brooke. Yeah, I was going to say um, for us, um, we had uh, local companies who stepped up and provided free internet. You know, so we had uh, the opportunity to really leverage some of our strategic partners um, to increase accessibility to families that may not have had it. Um, prior to this, so that was extremely helpful for us. We did a survey um, within the last few weeks and the majority of our families had access to some type of device. So whether it was their phone, iPad, computer, most already had something. But as you also mentioned, Kevin, we have diversity in some rural and urban and suburban areas. We provided the devices, um, we loaned them out. Um, and it's definitely something we're also considering with some of our monies. Uh, in moving forward that schools aren't that aren't one-to-one -one, um, really strive towards that. Um, but we were pleasantly surprised to review in our survey that, yes, in fact, they, most families had access. Um, and that was really critical um, to our shift. And I, I don't think um, that was the primary issue. I mean, we have uh, some schools, we have quite a few schools on Indian reservations with which are as rural as you can get. But and most of them are, are pretty well resourced in terms of Chromebooks. But boy, I'll tell you the issue more than anything was instructional capacity. It was the ability for teachers to make sense of what they have. And you know, you, when when you talk about a kinder, when you talk about primary K through three, I mean you can have a device in your hand, but they shouldn't be on that device all day, right? right? They mm -hmm. should have limits. And so then it's like, well, how do you how, you know, how do you instruct? I mean, you can't just give worksheets, right? And right. you can't have them play games and chat all the time. So what, where is that and how do you develop that? And I mean, that was the challenge that we're still facing. I mean, the idea of how do you develop that instructional capacity of your teachers so they're not completely overwhelmed, but they're effective, you know? Absolutely. Well, we, had, um, we had Bill Brannick on the podcast about a month ago from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, uh, who's in charge of instructional technology. And Bill uses technology coaches quite a bit. And uh, in, in many ways, they were they were well positioned for, uh, for this crisis. Obviously, again, some schools better than others. But is that the kind of professional development I would imagine that uh, some of you will be doing this summer? just in case we're, we're hit with this again. Yeah, so I mean, when it comes to professional development, and by the way, uh, Bill is such a great guy. I know that you and I had the opportunity to work with him back in Philly. Uh, yeah. But what is so great is that, for example, I'm sure everyone had these opportunities to offer trained teachers utilizing Google um, and other platforms. 
Uh, so even though perhaps they were using something that was free or low cost, uh, we were able to procure that professional development for our teachers when they needed it the most. And even to actually get uh, teachers Google Classroom certified, uh, we were able to actually do that a handful of times too, in part because we're able to utilize Title II monies that were given to us by the state or the state of Michigan Department of Education, but also because we also had some very generous people that uh, stepped up and that were able to give money. But there's a lot more PD to do for sure. Uh, make sure that we have everything buttoned down and ironclad for the fall. Can I just jump in? I'm obviously not yeah. in the same um, superintendent role, but it occurred to me, I think Tim um, tapped into something that um, really did come right to the surface is what, you know, what is the nature of the teacher student relationship? We know that in ideally it, it's a, it's a relational um, in person in incarnate experience. Um, when that's taken away, then teachers had to consider how to manage that in a virtual environment, but also um, what I heard from a number of people was how to resource inform parents who now had a very different role. Um, oh obviously, you know, church teaches that they are the primary educators. Well, all of a sudden, boom. They um, are the educator. The <laughs> educator. That's the practical reality. So I think that um, some of the best practices I saw were efforts on the parts of schools to support and help parents in their new role. Fantastic. So I want to turn our uh, conversation a little bit towards the document uh, that we referenced earlier. And uh, for those who are listening or watching, we'll place a link on our show notes to where you can download a PDF of, the, of this great document. But it was the, a value proposition for Catholic schools during uncertainty. And I'm just curious, uh, how did the how did the concept of this uh, come about? Uh, how did this uh, how did the what was the genesis of this? So it was it was interesting as all these things are, and guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, as any effective thing is. Um, but I had separate conversations, first with Brooke and later with Tim, both of whom expressed a desire and a need to have um, clear a, a clear understanding of the mission and nature of Catholic schools at a time when we knew schools were coming under fire. We knew we were entering a difficult period, um, and also uh, to support our school leaders on a way forward. And the three of us, I think, finally just kind of convened, and then Tim um, really took the bull by the horns, as a Montana man is wont to do, and um, <laughs> led us through um, led us through this this process. And I, I will say, um, this document and others that will come after it are very helpful um, both to our USBCB advocacy efforts, but also to arm our leaders, our Catholic school principals, teachers, families right, who at this moment really all need to be swept up into this advocacy role. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that um, that always bothers me, and it's, it's, I mean, I've been a superintendent for six years, but even goes back before that, is people say, what is the NCEA going to do about this? Or what is the USCCB going to do about this? What are, you know, whoever that, you know, big bad organization is. Right. And so, you know, I had someone call me and say, hey, I, I know you're on the Committee for Education. What is the USCCB and what are the bishops going to do, you know, about what, you know, why Catholic schools are important during this time? And I'm like, why are you waiting for them? And they're like, well, I can't do it. And I was like, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe you can. And I was like, well, I I'll make a few phone calls and we'll see if we can just get a group of people together to say, 
can we tackle this project? And sure enough, that's what happened. But it's like, because I, I, it happens a lot. People will call me or email me and say, what is blank going to do about this? And I, I always want to turn around and go, what are you going to do about it? I mean, you know, like you can't just sit around and wait for for somebody to, you know, to give you exactly what you need. You just have to do it. Yeah, I had a, a great conversation um, with Mary Pat. I met her, you know, um, you know, a few weeks prior, um, and I was really inspired, uh, not only with her um, knowledge but her approachability. Um, so I was really excited. We had an instant connection, um, and we had this conversation. And then I got a call from Tim, um, and we just started brainstorming. And um, I felt exactly what Tim just said: is we needed to do something. Um, we should not wait. Um, and we are a part of this really large, beautiful faith family, but we're all struggling. There's so many different levels of um, that stress and anxiety and fear we were experiencing. We needed to just pause together to pray and to help one another. So this document, um, quite honestly, came so quickly um, with the brainstorming of the members um, because I truly believe God's hand was in it. For us to be connected um, and to support one another. So it was a really amazing experience. And Tim is extremely organized. Um, he set up our timelines and, and pushed us. And um, we did, we, we knocked out some really great work. And um, it's just an honor to be able to share it and to support each other and hopefully inspire everyone with it. And I wasn't involved in that project, but I really applaud the three of you for doing what you did. I think Tim and the others really hit the nail on the head. That is, we cannot just wait idly by until something is done. So, like, for example, I know everyone has their you know, professional learning community or their network of superintendents that they speak with. Uh, for example, tonight, you know, I have one at 830. Uh, it's going to include about 10 superintendents who've been meeting ever since this started uh, from superintendents all the way from the East Coast all the way to the West you can get in California. Uh, where we're able to talk about a lot of these different issues. So I think we're individually excellent, but we're a lot better together when we're working toward these projects, whether it's, you know, the USDCB with the Federal Assistance Advisory Commission regarding CARES stuff or what these three were able to do regarding, you know, value proposition work. The more we can do stuff like this, the better off all of our Catholic schools are going to be. I think that, you know, the, the ultimate question is, is that people say if, if we have to go remote again, you know, the parents say, is it really worth the tuition? You know, that's the bottom line question. And it's like, you can't avoid that. You have to answer it and you have to say, well, are we building in faith community and faith formation? Are we building in community formation so people feel connected and cared for and loved, even in a remote environment? Can we do that? And then, you know, the other piece is that if there really aren't, I mean, that was kind of the first thing we say is there really aren't really well known, uh, what, what's the language, national values for Catholic education. So we, we can't all sort of point to here's the things that we do and, and, and why we're important. That's not to say people haven't tried and people haven't articulated and maybe regionally or, or in the system they have, but it's like, It'd be nice to sort of try to develop that, not for a marketing campaign. I mean, you know, that always comes up. People go, are you going to buy ads at the Super Bowl? Or are you going to put up right. signs, every, you know, billboards? It's like, that's not the point. The point is we need to give our leaders the idea. And that's why we went with these sort of five Ps that maybe they can talk about right now so that it's something that they can grab hold of and say, okay, 
Tim, thanks for that layup. Uh, that's exactly where I was going next. Let's talk a little bit about those uh, those five Ps. So uh, they are prayer, partnership with families, pers uh, perseverance, personalization, and planning. Let's start with prayer. Let's talk about the resilience of Catholic schools through this pandemic through prayer. Tell me about your experience of that. I'll just say for me, it's, it, it dovetails into reflecting on, on one of the, the um, silver linings maybe as well. Um, yeah. The way that um, my personal prayer life has grown um, and this unique way that we have been able to connect um, because we couldn't go to mass and this increased sense of community because we had to find a way. I, I think prayer, um, first of all, is, is what you know, is a foundation. And um, I know Mary Pat did um, some great reflection on this as well, is why this happened. Pulling off of what Brooke just said about prayer, I think the, the, the thing about the essence of prayer is that we know that prayer really is that relationship and conversation with the divine, with God. And what it means for our kids is it introduces them to the supernatural reality. Um, in fact, you know, the, the Holy See's teaching on Catholic schools is, is something of a framework we can look to, some uh, characteristics of what Catholic schools should be. And one of those is imbued with a supernatural vision. This is extremely important when the world finds itself in the kind of darkness and toughness that we have found ourselves in. It's a reminder to our, our children that problems of this world can never be solved here in the world. Christ alone is what will restore us. And that is where our hope comes from. So I think uh, prayer and the ongoing efforts that all of the schools and dioceses have made to continue that for students is really quite critical. Go ahead, Kevin. I Sorry. think that Mary Pat really hits the nail on the head when she's talking about Archbishop Miller's work about really what makes a Catholic school Catholic. And I think what Tim and the others were able to do was sort of not water it down, but really uh, sort of with a new audience today that can't necessarily go through some of the, you know, complicated wording and reference to various encyclicals to say, these are the P's. This is what a Catholic school education is all about. So, for example, when it comes to prayer, you know, we have to do this in community, even though perhaps we are dispersed. So, so very proud how many of our Catholic schools, and it was virtually almost all of them, still have their weekly school mass that they did with the pastor or the parochial vicar where everyone attended via Zoom. Uh, and of course, they turned off the chat feature so people can't talk to the church when they're observing. But I mean, that was great. And it wasn't just the kids. It was also the parents. The parents, you know, they wanted to take a day, uh, you know, not a day, but an hour or half hour away from the workday to get a break. They were able to actually attend mass with their children, granted virtually and observing, but that really is, I think, demonstrable of what our Catholic schools can do. That fosters the community, that fosters really the goodwill, and helps us to have a pathway forward. Unlike, and again, nothing against our secular brethren in the public or the charter schools, they really didn't have anything like that that unified them. Uh, so whether it's virtual or in person, you know, the value propositions of our Catholic schools are far and above really any of the other secular options out there. Yeah, and we talked about, we had these, and we want to make sure that prayer was the first one. And, and I think the reason is we have to just step back and say people are anxious and confused and angry. If you don't, if you can't acknowledge that, you aren't paying attention. And so 
we have a solution, if you will, for that. I mean, it's not going to solve every problem, but it's a it's a it's a way, it's a framework to help people understand what's going on and cope with uh, all this confusion and uncertainty. And and that's where we should be talking about that. We should be talking about and we should be leading with listen, you're going to be part of a faith community, you're going to have spiritual fellowship, and you're going to have a way for you to cope. And never has there been a time where we needed that more, without right. a doubt. Um, right. It makes so much sense. How about uh, partnership with families? How, do, how was that lived out by your schools, and, and how, do you, how do you articulate that in our value proposition? Well, we started with um, one of the things we recommended was surveying parents, you know, finding out what they need finding out where, where they're at, uh, and then trying to meet those. We try to do check-ins with them weekly. And then we, and a lot of schools went to sort of monthly town halls where they could answer questions. And these are things that they don't usually do. You know, mm-hmm. they usually, it's like, well, we're going to hear from people with the squeaky wheels or the people who need things. It's like building in those frameworks so that people feel more connected was really important. That's terrific. Do you think that they're, you know, when you, when you think of the the communication level, Uh, With many of our schools, it was probably amped up quite a bit more than ever before. And so uh, that's probably a level of communication that many parents have now come to expect. And it's going to be hard to take a step back from that and using technology than than ever before. I mean, I look at all the online masses that are happening now. It's going to be you can't put that back in the box. Now I've got masses. I can attend mass anywhere in the world, literally every week. And if I want or. You know, we've had the luxury in our diocese of having the bishop every morning for morning mass in his private chapel. But I, I'm, I'm encouraged to see so many parishes continuing that online, even though we're moving through these yellow phases and the step out period. Do you think with Catholic schools, now that it's out of the box, that's only going to improve and increase over time? And, and are the things that we just can't take a step back from anymore? I can go first. I think the, that you're right, Jim. There are going to be certain things that will continue other things that will continue for a bit and perhaps more. So for example, if I take a look at Mass, uh, we certainly, even though we provide the catechesis and the instruction, uh, I have a feeling uh, that quite a few dioceses and archdioceses will not be televising the Masses as frequently as they have, uh, because certainly we want to encourage in-person participation so that individuals can get the graces uh, and have access to the sacraments. But at the same time, in terms of you know virtual rosaries or being able to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, those type of things could be you know not to steal from Brooke but like a pivot uh, or a transformation of how we're going to be able to offer those spiritual offerings in the future. In terms of communication, um, you know certainly we want to communicate often with our parents. Um, you know I and I know a whole bunch of other soups, including those fine folks here with us today have been doing videos and weekly communications and things of that nature. I, I think that the cadence and the tone might change a little bit, uh, but it's good because we're able to toot you know, the horns, not of ourselves, but more so of our wonderful teachers and what they're doing. And this will really help to bolster that value proposition and really the, the whole rationale for Catholic schools in the minds of all those that see it. But Tim's a master, not to do another transition, but Tim's a master you know, with his podcast, not to promote it here, about talking about all this you can stuff. Promote it. I like what you're saying, Kevin, but I mean, I think that, that what we have to consider is that, I mean, one of the things I've noticed is a couple decisions we made um, as, a, as a chancery and our principals are really taken aback 
that yeah. they weren't given input on that. And I think the same thing's going to happen at our schools. I mean, we're going to have to make some important decisions about, you know, whether visitors are allowed or whether plexiglass or, you know, a lot of seemingly small decisions. But I think parents are going to be like, how come we weren't told or how come we weren't asked? And so right. there is going to be an expectation for democracy that we're going to have to uh, adjust to. And we're going to have to we're going to have to continue to communicate. But we also have to communicate some boundaries that it's like, you know what? There's just we can't get uh, a, a vote on everything. Right. right. And if I can do a quick follow up to that, uh, certainly when it comes to the Catholic Church, we don't want to think of it as a democracy, but we have to listen to uh, the faithful. Right. Right. So, like, uh, for example, uh, preparing for this fall, uh, we all have, I'm sure, respective task forces about the safe return to school and preparing for various options or scenarios. Um, but we recently put out a survey to all of our parents in the archdiocese. Again, not necessarily having them vote mask versus no mask, uh, but you know, trying to get the perception so that when we actually have our medical professionals that are on our task forces saying this is what needs to happen, what the feedback that we have received from parents or that we will receive will help us to tailor the messaging uh, so that when it comes to them, they're gonna be a lot more receptive. Plus, we do want to listen to our parents. And this is something I'm convinced, and I agree with you, Tim, we really haven't done really well, not individually, but more so just across uh, all of our Catholic schools and dioceses. This is presents, I think, a very unique opportunity to move forward and to listen to those very important constituents. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would just concur there. Um, I think if, if we try to um, minimize the experiences that we've had or tried to go backwards in some way, we'll have missed the lesson. Um, we'll have missed the opportunity. So it is about trying to now just um, find balance um, with that moving forward. Continued communication, quite honestly, we're here to serve them. Right. Um, and to um, the, the democracy, and we're never gonna make everyone happy, but allowing them to have a voice um, and be a part of this community is what the partnership is all about. Um, so even if they don't get what they want per se, they know that they were heard. Um, and that's how we continue to strengthen um, the community to move forward. I am so excited to see how it transitions in the fall, um, you know, whether or not we can be face to face. That's our plan is to be back, to be face to face with safety precautions there, um, but also to be ready to have virtual, um, have hybrid. We want our families to know um, that we're ready no matter what. Um, and that's really part of um, looking at these um, guiding principles here that we're talking about was um, to be able to help support our leaders too, to be able to have this conversation and know um, confidently with our families, you're heard and we're gonna be here. I just wanna echo everyone and say that I think there's an opportunity for us to consider some of the benefits that home learning gave our kids. One example is consider the child over the past few months who's had his school experience punctuated with lots of opportunity to be outside and play. We really don't want to take that kid, stick him back in a desk for hours on end. Um, I think it's an invitation for our schools to, to think about uh, ways that we can schedule school a little more humanely and allow for more play and, and that kind of thing, because that's some of the more positive things I've heard from families about this home learning experience. Uh, here's a question from uh, one of our listeners. Uh, 
Are your schools planning to implement distance virtual learning in the fall? What are the challenges for students to be able to learn in a virtual environment? What are your, I'm sure you're all thinking of a couple of different contingency plans right now as it relates to coming back, not coming back, coming back in a limited way. Uh, what are some of those challenges uh, that you're that you're encountering right now or you're thinking about? I mean, I think that there's there's a, a mistaken impression that you can do simultaneous instruction, you know, that um, you can just turn on a camera and a teacher can deliver uh, to some students, maybe half the class, maybe all that aren't high risk. And then those can be at home and they can just tune in by camera and it's just going to be fine. And the idea like simultaneous is just is so difficult to imagine the technology, uh, the pedagogy and everything. So what we're trying to do is, I mean, what, what I've said is we're, we're going to have students who are either high risk themselves or whose parents do not feel comfortable sending them back. And I think nationwide, they're talking about up to like a sixth or a seventh of all students may not return because they, the parents don't feel comfortable until a vaccine is developed. So we have to have sort of that contingency of a, of a hybrid of even if we can return, how do we address the learning of those students who aren't there? I have a slightly different approach, not that much different, uh, but we have to be ready when it comes to the fall. So we have right now, um, Dr. May Bluestein, our Assistant Superintendent for Curriculum Instruction Assessment, I sort of joke about her being our CIA director, but she's actually putting together the standards uh, that we're expecting for online or distance learning instruction. So how much asynchronous versus synchronous instruction? Uh, what are the expectations when it comes to assessments? All those different things. So if we have to be in that environment, we're going to be ready to do that at the drop of a hat. Where I differ from Tim, and, and again, this is all just matters of prudential judgment and depending upon where you're at. So here in Detroit, we're not really looking at actually having an option for parents to say, I don't want to send my kid back. Uh, now, granted, you know, we completely respect the role of the parent, but at the same time, taking a look at the role of the teacher uh, to try to have something that would be, you know, be a distance learning kind of live or perhaps through some other type of modality uh, with people at home versus people uh, or trying to combine that with folks in the classroom, it becomes really difficult. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, I guess it really just depends upon the nature of the schools, how many you have, how large they are, all those different things. But, you know, I think that we can actually have tailored options that can work for the vast majority of folks. And one thing that we're sort of looking at, we can't implement it for the fall, uh, and it's not an announcement at all. But, and I'd love to partner with any of you guys on this, because uh, I'm working with a handful of other superintendents. It's a completely virtual cyber school that would be Catholic. Uh, and the lead time for something like that would be 18 to 24 months. We have to do it well or not do it at all. So that perhaps could be an option in the future. Does it address some of these families right now that maybe don't want to send their kid? Maybe not. But we're convinced, or more so, we have the belief that if we have the precautions in place, we're able to properly communicate them to families. The vast majority, if not really almost all of the families, will be coming back uh, in the mm -hmm. fall. So we are also prepared for those scenarios. Um, actually, a little bit of the combination between Tim and Kevin is um, that's where the personalization comes in um, yeah. and part of our, our values here that we're talking about. 
Um, for us in Allentown, we're looking at regional cyber teams so that we can look at a teacher's schedule and free them up in a particular building where they could um, have something live and then also have it recorded to share um, the responsibility in that particular area. Um, and then it's really customized um, based on what the needs are um, because it is very different whether we're in the suburban, urban, or rural area uh, as well. Um, so we're planning to return in the fall, um, have those personalized options available. Um, we're also realistic that if we need to go back to virtual at some point, um, you know, for example, there's, you know, fears and considerations around flu season, um, you know, could this um, crop back up? We're going to be ready and we're going to be even better than we were now um, in streamlining um, and having heard our parents through surveys to make sure that um, it's authentically Catholic. That's one of um, the areas we talk about because some of the tools we use um, are very secular in nature and everyone's using those same tools because they're good. But we need to make sure that we are reviewing those and looking at those to incorporate our values within those tools um, and to, to be cautious of some of the pre-made lessons and activities um, it, it is an opportunity for us to, to springboard into the future by keeping the benefits that we've learned from this really tough situation. Awesome. So a couple more questions. Let's take from the field real quick because uh, my, uh, my, my chat box here is lighting up a little bit. So from Susan, how do Catholic schools justify the cost of tuition when there is home, when there's basically home learning? Probably maybe the number one question you might be facing right now. How, how do you justify that tuition when you're basically in a home learning environment? Who wants to take that one? And maybe that's maybe the, maybe the one of the tougher questions that principals who are listening right now might be faced with right now. So let's think about that answer for a moment. Well, I think if you are essentially turning over all education to the parents and you're not doing anything in terms of community and faith formation, then it, it is a tough sell. Um, but I think if you're providing guidance for how learning should take place, what standards we need to get to, um, and providing community and faith support, then I think it's um, then I think it's easier to do. Now, what that mean, what that looks like in 11th grade versus first grade is very different. But, um, you know, if you have a first grader at home and all they're getting is a packet of worksheets to fill out every two weeks and there's nothing online, there's no community, there's no Zooming, there's no mass or, or there's no daily assembly where they feel connected. Uh, that's going to be a really tough sell. Um, so you got to find a way to to make connections and to provide guidance. I, I agree with that. Um, I think one of the the benefits we've had is our parents are um, participating with us now. I think we've we've struggled because we have you know working families that were never able to come to something, um, and we had limited parent engagement. This has really increased the opportunity. So I think um, that in a very deliberate and strategic way um, sets us apart um, by having parent engagement, parent community building um, in um, along with our faith formation. Because uh, we, we have that, you know, conversation, what, what makes us different? Always, <laughs> now mm -hmm. even more so, um, in making sure that we recognize what our gifts are as Catholic schools. 
That's a particularly important point, Brooke. I know in my own experience in Catholic education with my own children, it was that parent community that continued to strengthen and nourish us as a family. And you don't always find that because we did we did public school for a year or two and nothing against public schools, but we didn't have that same kind of community or building or faith or common values. And, you know, one of the things with Catholic education I always felt comfortable with is if my, if my kid made a friends with another kid in the class, odds are that parent probably has a lot of the same values that I do. And so we, we formed a lot of wonderful friendships that we have today, you know, 12 years later because of that. And so uh, that's something you can't really put a price on. Uh, but it's kind of like, who do you want your kids hanging out with, you know, either both virtually or, uh, you know, when they actually do get to play face to face again. Yeah. And I, I think the question also um, really is, is a serious one for Catholic educators in the sense that it does call our attention to the fact that I personally, I believe a lot of our energy should be spent on um, providing the safest environment in the school that we can. I think we really should aim for in-person reopening. Um, I think, you know, it's, I don't know, I can't remember how many times Jesus said in the Bible, be not afraid. Um, you know, obviously be sensible, take the data, but we know a couple things. We know that um, by and large, children are not um, as affected by this virus as other populations. There has, I've seen data that said there's not much evidence of children spreading it. Um, and uh, there's, I know there's some con conflicting data around that, but um, I do think that what the what Susan's question comes down to is the heart of it. We really are a relational um, model, and I think that um, contingencies, as Brooke said, it could it could flare up again. Um, we have to be prepared for that. But in general, I just want to encourage Catholic school leaders um, to to remember to have have hope. Don't be afraid, and let's keep moving forward. Um, because you know, in all this discussion about what is essential. Uh, it's essential that children learn and that they play together and that they uh, have these experiences. This is, this is you know, um, not an optional thing. So um, that's my, my encouragement is, okay, I move forward. The other thing I would add, Jim, is that this, is, this gets back to the communication piece. You know, um, do parents understand the work that teachers are doing? Um, and do parents understand how much this costs? You know, um, because some parents have this idea, well, well, if you're only doing online, I mean, it doesn't cost as much. We should get a refund. And it's like, oh, really? Well, how much money do you think we're actually saving? And I mean, I think you should figure that out. I mean, I think schools should be able to publish like over these two months that we were remote. This is how much we saved. And people would be surprised to hear yeah. that we may have cut some staff and utilities went down, but some other things went up. It turns out it was it was a bit of a wash or maybe a slight decrease. And, um, and I think people would be surprised to hear that if people don't know that your budget is, you know, 80% or more, uh, faculty and staff, uh, wages and benefits, um, they they would be shocked. You know, they think it just costs money to run the operation. It's like, no, like, and those people are working. And really, if we reopen, when we reopen, I should say, it's, it's going to be more expensive because we have more supplies, more staffing, uh, more protocols, all those things. Um, and people need to know that. Absolutely. I have another question I want to run by you guys. Um, Mary Page, what ideas do you have, do you all have to reinforce community building and parent engagement over the summer? 
So one thing that we encouraged our principals to do in Detroit is really reach out to each one of our families during the school year by phone one time a week. And for our relatively large schools, uh, we asked, of course, the principal to be utilizing, you know, the talents and services of their administrative staff, uh, like assistant principals and the like. But one thing that we have encouraged, and we recently had a conversation about this with our principals, is to have those regular high touch points with our families when the summer. So it's not just, you know, continuing the weekly phone calls. Those are going to be done. You know, the families are going to relax. But to actually, if we're able to do so with the current, you know, government regulations in place, have a barbecue. I mean, you know, a pack of hot dogs doesn't cost very much. Granted, you know, you're going to probably have some, you know, people that don't like hot dogs, have hamburgers, whatever. Get them there. Be able to really foster that sense of community. Have an outdoor mass as well. I mean, for example, here in the Archdiocese of Detroit, very much like a whole bunch of other dioceses, I'm sure, we're limited to the number of folks that we can have within the parish church. It's at max 25%. Well, there are ways to do that safely outside if you have a relatively large school. Again, it's about community and also communion. So if we're able to do that in regular intervals over the summer, in addition to the level of communication that they have come to expect, over the past you know few months because of coronavirus and then i think this is how we can really stay in touch with them i hope that the person who asked the question doesn't take away just hamburgers and hot dogs but i mean you know, that's one essential element have that community take advantage of the good weather we we're uh, blessed in allentown to have an amazing director of uh, marketing in our office and so she works on a regular basis with our advancement directors um, within our schools and you know um we know that summer is a key recruitment period of time so um not only um recruiting new but also retaining our current students so they really take a look at the summer is a really busy time um yeah, to keep sure. families engaged. so um the summer activities you mentioned whether it's a summer picnic with social distancing um whether there's step-up days and opportunities for virtual tours is really an opportunity so they're definitely activities that should continue in the summer we have uh, someone who said that their uh, their diocese doesn't offer much or hasn't offered much in the way of support i won't name the diocese just out of respect to the diocese but um, if their school doesn't feel like they are getting the kinds of supports uh, that they need to effectively manage through this crisis mary pat do you have any any ideas or thoughts how that uh, school can get the resources that they need or support they need? Yeah, that's a, unfortunate to hear, of course. Um, but there are organizations that are providing resource help. Um, obviously, my office, Secretary of Catholic Education, we're happy to talk mm -hmm. with anyone um, and give some direction. I would also mention NCEA, which has done a, a great job of resourcing around this. And there are countless webinars and materials available on their site. Also, um, Notre Dame's ACE and McGrath Institute have also uh, done a good job. So I think it's a question of reaching out beyond their own diocese, but those are, are just a few that I would, I would, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just got to find it. You just got to, I mean, Greeley, I think Greeley's uh, document is good, but I think you just got to keep, I mean, you're obviously doing something because you're on this webinar. So you got to keep, you just got to keep reaching out and saying, what are you using? What are you doing? And how can I develop that? 
And, and I would encourage you to um, just look within as well. So you might be looking up to your diocesan office um, and these are other great resources. Um, look to one another just over your shoulder um, in being able to initiate maybe a meeting um, with some key teachers that have demonstrated some leadership and other principles. You all together um, and inviting the Holy Spirit into that conversation can have some really dynamic results. Um, use one another, even locally, um, to support each other. And all of that is great. I'm just going to add one last thing, and that is if a particular diocese were exercising tremendous Christian charity by not mentioning the diocese, and that's great. But uh, if you don't feel like you're getting support, get together with a few principals and collegially, if you haven't already, ask uh, the superintendent or the diocese. I mean, you know, they're busy. I can assure you probably doing a number of different things. If you ask them, hey, I'd like to have this resource or that resource, most diocesan superintendents, I could tell you, if not all of them, are very open to feedback. Excellent. Excellent. So we just have a couple minutes left here in the hour. I'm just going to kind of wrap up with a question here. Um, overall, is there uh, the, the topic of our webinar today? We've kind of bounced around it on different ways. Marketing Catholic school resilience. There's an administrator listening today. Um, any other thoughts on how they would market how resilient Catholic schools have been throughout this crisis and how resilient schools are going to continue to be uh, as we go through the summer and into the next school year? I would just offer this, you know, the same stats and facts proving the efficacy of Catholic schools are still true today. If you go to a Catholic school, you're seven times more likely to practice your faith as an adult versus if you went to a charter or public school. You're still going to make 14% more over the course of your lifetime. If you're a child of color, you're 2.4 times more likely to graduate with a baccalaureate degree from college. So ultimately, those value propositions are still there. It's just in a slightly different modality. And, you know, people can take a look around. I don't care if it's Philadelphia public schools or even Detroit public schools. Most of the time during this pandemic, they weren't open or functioning in any way, shape or form. They're actually both superintendents, very fine gentlemen, but advocating for a truncation, a very early end to the school year. We were still open and all of us were still working. So I think that the resources are out there, and if a school or a benefactor wants to find them and sort of put them together and use that for either marketing collateral or as a proof point, it does exist, and it presents a tremendous opportunity to help your local Catholic school. I guess I would say that some people are really attracted to the idea of the tradition and the idea that we've been around for a while and we're an institution. But I think maybe at this time what's more important is to talk about lessons that we've learned and how we've been able to pivot and we've been able to change and develop and continue to. I think that the reality we're going to see over the next six weeks is we're going to see some public school districts announcing that they're going remote and that they can't reopen. And so talking about how you can adapt and be nimble and adjust it will really resonate. And it may not resonate right now, but I anticipate we're going to see quite a bump in enrollment in August because people are going to say these schools are going to be open. These schools are safe. These schools can communicate what they're doing. And my student is going to continue to learn. My children are going to learn here. Um, and I think that's where you that's where you want to be. I would share, um, I believe, in marketing, um, it, the message of um, sharing our, our vulnerability that we um, 
grew together, that we um, experienced difficult moments, um, demonstrates a level of humility um, and really sets us up for encouraging confidence um, because we're speaking the truth. Um, and because if we pretend that we had it all together, um, <laughs> people can see through that. So by having right. that honest conversation and using some um, phrases and um, key messages around those areas um, demonstrate the resilience and ultimately the truth is then shared um, will be extremely attractive to people within our communities. Excellent. And I'll, I'll just wrap it up by saying that, you know, our resilience is found in the direct link that we have to the evangelical and salvific mission of the church. And it's occurred to me as we've been talking, we are living in through such very, very troubled times. And um, I'm going to let Dr. Martin Luther King say something uh, much better than I could. Education without morals is like a ship without a compass, merely wandering nowhere. It is not enough to have the power of concentration, but we must have worthy objectives upon which to concentrate. It is not enough to know truth, but we must love truth and sacrifice for it. Well, those are beautiful words, and I don't think we could end on a more positive note. Thank you, Mary Pat. Mary Pat, I just want to thank you, Tim, Kevin, and Brooke for being on our panel today. It was a great conversation. Uh, this will be available again uh, on our website as well as on our podcast over the next week. Thank you to all of our participants for joining us. This is the final installment of our four-part series on advancing our church through challenging times, but we're already working on our next one, and I'm sure we'll be doing something mid-summer. So thanks again, everybody. Uh, have a terrific summer, and uh, thanks for being on our show today. I want to thank Brooke Tache, Mary Pat Donahue, Tim Yule, and Kevin Kajewski for being on our show today. I'll leave a link to each of them and the document that we discussed during our conversation on the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for their support of our show. If you'd like to leave a comment about today's show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com and click on Leave a Voicemail. We'd love to get your feedback. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for over 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Have a terrific week. Thanks for all you do to advance the mission of our church. Take care and God bless.